Hello everyone, welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover on the show, feel free to email us at fromnowheretonothingpodcast at gmail.com or contact us on our Facebook page. If you are like many others, your view of the world as you go about your everyday life has likely shifted significantly during the 21st century. If you've been alive long enough to remember the 20th century, you likely recall a time when weather patterns were taken for granted and talk of global climate issues was relegated to the back page of physical newspapers. So how do we think philosophically about such a drastic emergent event that wasn't even considered throughout much of history? And why do we seem to struggle so much in addressing it now? Today, we're looking at climate baselines. Hmm. A good introduction. So, I, before we start, what do we mean when we refer to climate baselines? Well, I, the first time I've encountered this was in an article a couple of weeks ago. Uh, not the word baseline, of course, that's quite mm. long, but climate baseline, and it was in a in a piece by a a man who writes for various outlets he works for the washington post now and he, he, i shared it with you or you yeah 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 and and he says that the term emerged uh from a climate scientist in 1995 or so um referring to what we take as the standard of what our re regional or localized climate is and that we we measure anything after that according to the, what we what's immediately there mm. and and he this article wasn't long but it's really interesting because he was he was talking about being in uh the appalachian trail and in maine and looking at uh, out over the the forests and everything and thinking, well, this is, it's wonderful to still have a, this, this a place a preserved. But of course it isn't preserved because when it gets into it, the animal life has almost completely changed. The tree compositions have almost completely changed over time. And so then he dove, dove into the idea of how do we get past this false idea of a baseline, uh, false in the sense that it doesn't tell us how things really were. Mm. It's just a, something we choose now to measure from outwardly. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I remember when I visited Maine, that is kind of the, the feeling you get is, you mm -hmm. know, you look around and all everything is mossy and, and old and, and kind of, it feels undisturbed. But the problem is that like, it doesn't take long for it to get that way. <laughs> I think I told the story on, on um, an episode a few weeks ago about, you know, we've, I've got 66 acres of property and we found this stone foundation that was all mossy and torn down and old and we you know we, we thought it was super old and then the guy who put it there came by <laughs> the cabin right <laughs> so yeah your local climate yeah. you know i mean yeah. if you're in an extremely dry place then you know you can have pyramids or petroglyphs or all kinds of things that are still standing after thousands of years but yep. if you live in a uh a very wet environment then things don't even last decades, you know, before they, before they disappear. So that, that all kind of plays into it a little bit, yep. but yeah, the, the article you sent me was very interesting. There was another um, interesting article that came out this week talking about how, um, you know, they looked at sort of six climate, um, 
uh, boundaries and they, you know, established that four of them, uh, humanity have surpassed yeah. in terms of yeah. the ability of the planet to stably, uh, sustain us and that sort of thing. So when did humans start to consider the role climate plays in the survival of the species? So, you know, I, you know, when individually, <laughs> right, climate has always, um, sort of been, uh, the friend and enemy of humanity, right? You can imagine hunter gatherers. Yes, you can gather your food and you can hunt your food from the environment, but you also had to beware of rainstorms and sure. and droughts and these other things. But when do you do you know happen to know when you know philosophers would think about climate as impacting this humanity humanity as a species? <sighs> this is gonna be a muddy uh, response. Uh, because I have two, two really different paths to this. One is probably the the more obvious, which is the uh, indigenous peoples in in any place, ancient peoples, ancient cultures, which themselves change some over time. But uh, uh, in our own particular area, the Haudenosaunee people, uh, so many indigenous cultures uh, were always thinking about seven generations or six generations or 10 generations. So, you know, I, I don't think the number is quite as important as the idea of the expanse of it. What are we doing now that will affect seven generations down? And, we, and, and at first you might say, well, okay, seven generations, but really think about it. Yeah. Uh, how many greats is that on a grandfather? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and we we generally think of our well our own lives and maybe our parents, maybe our grandparents and maybe our kids. But that's four generations, but it's four co-existent generations or within memory touch of each other. Yeah, every once in a while you see a, a wild news article like um, the last person to be receiving a Civil War pension just died. You know, and it's like the wife of somebody who was second married or, um, you know, some president like William Henry Harris has grandsons that are alive. Or you hear right. a news article like this and you go, whoa, like that's only two generations and you're all the way back to the. Right. Know. Yeah. And and that and of course, that depends on how young wife, old person. Right. Yeah. And all that. But, but and longevity. I mean, some families have people who live well in, into their 90s. OK, so let's see if you had. Uh, Two back-to-back -back generations who are 90, they covered 180 years with some uh, Venn diagram in, in between there. That's back a ways. Mm. You're taking seven generations, and, and, and we, I, there, certainly there are people who do think of this, but as a culture, we don't think of this. And, and in fact, the, uh, many indigenous peoples, despite the conditions of uh, uh, do uh, there is it in is it in Maine? I was just I was reading about two. I think it was in the same article, wasn't it? Uh, where uh, they're trying to uh, with the the lead of the the director of of uh, natural resources for the, this particular indigenous group is leading the uh, attempt to restore and attend to forests in Maine, 
but that's going to but it's involving bringing in trees and and things that that weren't necessarily there in the old forest but need to be there in order for the new forest to grow and and the, the point of, so that's one it's the indigenous the other path is when you're talking maybe more formally philosophically is when when is it that people begin to think of what they're doing to the planet and i think if, if you get into those things you're probably into the enlightenment era is mm. the kantian kinds of things um the focus on what's utility what's what's good for the large number it still wasn't primarily a naturalist based thing yeah so do you think it was about the same time that global climate trends were postulated to be something that was unstable you know throughout a lot of humanity i think that nature was just thought of as nature and it was it was going to do what separate. it was going to do nature yeah, yeah. separate from us for so long yeah right when when yeah this is relatively recent mm. when we begin to notice that what we have made and how we use what we've made is having an effect and there are still lots of people who deny it There's still a plentiful of people and groups that say nope 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 humans don't have an effect on the planet I, I think it's getting harder and harder to maintain that position and have any kind of validity. Yeah, and I think uh, that, you know, man-made climate change can come in a lot of ways that people don't necessarily think of. I think everybody thinks of tailpipes, right? right. Well, you know, emissions yeah, yeah. and that sort of thing. But um, a couple weeks ago, my brother and I had the New York State Forester down to our land to, um, you know, to tell us how to best take care of, of the forest. And uh, as we walk through, he goes, okay, well, you got some young ash trees. He said, you should probably cut those all down. He said, there's no point. They're not going to grow to be yeah. mature trees. Trash trees. They call yeah, they, the uh, the uh, emerald ash borer is going to eat them all. There's no point. Cut them all down. And we go a little bit farther and he goes, okay, you got some beech trees here. Oh, and your, yep, your beech trees have, uh, what do you call it? oyster shell disease or something. Uh, yeah, it's got a fungal bacteria that passes through the roots. So you better cut all those down. Uh, Oh yeah, yep, yep. You got some, uh, you know, conifers here. You should probably just girdle them because they're not gonna let anything grow underneath them. And I go after a while. I go. So <laughs> tell me. I go. What trees are doing well? And he goes. Well, nothing really. <laughs> and I go. That's horrifying. I go. You know. Yeah. What about you know the the maples and the oaks and things? And he goes. Well, um. You know, he's like, right now the maples and, and the oaks are all right. He goes, but there's a, a beetle in Asia that, that eats every species of them. He said, and it's gotten over here a couple times and we've been able to eradicate it, but now they're trying to put all kinds of rules in place where you have to, uh, you can't leave any bark on pallets and you have to treat them a certain way so that the bug can't get over here. He said, because that's how all of this happened. He said, the emerald ash borer, the fungal disease, all this stuff. It all came over from Asia on pallets. And he said, and it's not just them. We've done it to them. Yes. We've sent stuff yeah. over to them that has wreaked havoc on their forests and on their people and on their environment. He said, so he's like, that's kind of the dark, dark side of globalization that a lot of people aren't aware of is that, you know, local ecosystems and environments have a certain 
characteristics and when you introduce things from other parts of the world it it can destroy it you know well that's man-made climate change right it, do you know how scary it is to have uh you know a professional forester tell you that no trees are on the upshot they're all you know like that's it's yeah that's horrifying. that's that's grim it's <laughs> really which does, which isn't to say don't listen to it okay you're obviously you're listening to it but then you're thinking so what do I plant? Yeah, and then the, and and how do I stop the deer from eating the the saplings that I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to try to plant? But do I just make this all fields? What's going to happen? Is this is so neat? It leads to all that thinking. Yeah, and he gave some he gave some really good advice on what to do. Um, but yeah, early on, you know, oh yep, the paper birch they're gonna, all going to get eaten. You know, like you go, you know, it's I think it's part of human nature to instinctively go. Well, I want to save these things. I don't want to just cut them. I don't want them to just resign and cut right, them down. Right. Um, but you know, there, there's hope because you know he said, "Well, the American chestnut, you know, is went extinct because it all got cut down and then you know diseased early on." He said, "But now we're reintroducing it." He said, "The thing that destroyed it died out because it didn't have a food source, and uh, we have seeds, so we're going to start distributing them to forests to hmm. start regrowing things." So, you know, there's always and there's always hope, right? But the thing is, hope is the path of hope is always the hard path, right? It's it's the easy path to continue doing the thing the things the way you have and to have this doom and gloom mindset. The hard path, ironically, right? It's harder to be hopeful because hopeful requires a lot of work. It's easier to just resign yourself and then keep doing the things that you've done. I think that that's that you've hit on a philosophical core foundational point that runs through some spiritual disciplines that runs through some philosophical isms too and that is yeah it's it's hard work mm. it's hard work to make the right decisions it's it's also though there are a number of things packed into the story you just told which is it's a terrific story an anecdote because um, part of the climate baseline issue uh well what do you do and so on well the, the writer that we started out with but then there are others as well that you you, you encounter as you're reading outward um is telling stories and encouraging the telling of stories and and accessing the knowledge that people have like the forester and uh, well no it wasn't always this way what if People, uh, great, my great grandfather had a story about all the the salmon that were running up upstream that, that don't exist anymore. In the, this person was writing, the article was talking about a person he'd interviewed, and and the salmon aren't in the river nearly as much. On the percentages, it's way low. But to know what things were in an anecdotal sense, not in it. Edenic sense, like the Garden of Eden, or or oh, it was perfect back then because it wasn't because there were imbalances because everything is constantly entropic. Mm. We've talked about that, so everything is always changing, no matter what. Uh, if if Europeans hadn't come to these shores, other things still might have floating on logs, yeah, <laughs> and and things. So it's it's not we we need to take. Fair responsibility for all this stuff, but again, we, but we also ship it out now from these shores to other places, as he mm -hmm. very adequately said. So the the idea is, what do we take as a baseline? Do we understand 
that a baseline is just a reference point and and how do we choose that reference point rather than just saying oh well it was good then and it's not good now or well now it's just as good as it ever was no we don't have nearly the fireflies that we did if we love fireflies as a kid um they're severely reduced we don't have the honey bee populations this is why you don't just try to spray honeybees if you find them you try to get somebody to take them so we're aware of these things um, but part of that is telling the story of why things have changed. It's not a story like a fairy story, but um, what has led to these changes in there, and then asking the questions like you were doing, well, what can we plant? <laughs> is yeah. there anything we, we should save? And also keeping in mind that you were doing a fast-forward in your head because he was doing a fast-forward in his head. Um, all of those ash trees you're not going to cut down all at once you don't have the time to do that first second all of the the paper birch and so on that they aren't going to all just die at once and fall over in the next year in all likelihood mm -hmm. so you have a chance to pick and choose what you're going to cull and that will affect the environment too yeah and there's there's a healthy way of doing it. you know it sounds doom and gloom when he says cut down all these things but you know he said there's a way to do it right if you you know, okay, if you have a, a dense part of the forest, then cutting out these things that are, are dead or are going to die provides space and light and nutrients for things to grow up underneath. Um, there's another way of cutting things down where he said, you know, girdling them, where you cut essentially a strip of bark around the whole trunk of the tree. And the trunk is almost like one big vein. That's where the nutrients get sucked up. And so by doing so, the tree won't fall, but it will die but it will leach all of its nutrients back into the soil and then trees in the surrounding area will use those nutrients. So the tree will die while standing up and then eventually it will fall, but while it's providing shade for trees that naturally grow up underneath the canopy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everybody knows this um, intrinsically, but we all have a fear of it extrinsically that, that things need to die for other things to live in every scenario, right? Yeah. You know, we have to eat, at the minimum plants, we have to kill plants in order to sustain ourselves. Sometimes animals, you know, that's just the way things go. And that's no different in a forest. And there's, but there's good ways and bad ways of doing it. And that's where the effects on the climate come in. Yeah. But you said something that is very interesting when we were talking about entropy, which is what we were talking about last week. Um, this idea that things are always tending towards disorder and mm -hmm. that systems are always consuming energy and expelling waste. With that in mind, is there such a thing as an ideal climate baseline? As we were talking about, it's always in flux. It's always changing, right? So how do we establish what is the platonic ideal of That's a marvelous of, of question. And, and, I, and not being a climate scientist, I'm not the best one to address it, but as a layperson and someone who does philosophy, as so many of us who listen and talk to each other do, uh, I don't think there is an ideal because there can't be a static baseline because that would imply that everything else has just stopped and changed. Uh, so this is why the, the, the idea even of choosing an emissions baseline year, you know, this is so politically important. Uh, some years the emissions have been not so bad for a, a particular country. And so they can say, okay, um, that's our baseline year. And and you may have a, a percentage that needs to change to meet that year, 
that's that mathematically would be different than if you chose a year that had a higher emission rate. And so this is what goes on for the, these conferences. It's is where what what's reasonably presentable to our people politically and socially to say, well, we have to do this much, but then it'll be okay. And but that then doesn't take into account other things such as fossil fuel companies who did this this week there's this uh, major project people have talked about for a long time with incredible amounts of money poured into it for two of the uh, largest fossil fuel companies to create carbon uh, sweepers carbon cleaners for the atmosphere that will start out small but presumably get bigger but they're certainly pretty big that might take upwards of uh, 500,000 tons of carbon, or maybe it's less than that, but something out, out, out of the atmosphere a year. But in the very same breath of announcing this, the person representing the company says, and this means that we can have sustainable fossil fuels for another 80 years. It does not mean that. Mm. And anybody who has any kind of sense of the science knows that's patently false. It, it doesn't... But it's like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Look, we're going to build these carbon sweepers. Therefore, we can just keep on doing what we're doing. Right. And then we'll do something else. No. All the projections are, no, we don't have nearly that amount of time. Thank you very much. Yes, do the carbon sweepers. Still stop. we got to reduce. we got to stop transporting ourselves the way we do. How are we going to do that? Yeah, yeah. and that's the tricky part, right, is when we're thinking about in entropy is that so a, a reality of existence and of life is that we are going to take ordered things and we're going to break them down into disordered things. <laughs> yes. And so as a result, you know, this consumption is going to always be part of how we do things. And, and even, even green energy, right? You know, there's, there's parts of it that are, that are um, not renewable. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you're using steel to build a windmill, well, that's that's going to be a process that's going to have an effect on the environment. Not as much as a coal-fired power plant, but yeah. it's still going yeah. to have an effect. And so I think that part of this idea of establishing some ideal climate baseline, um, it's kind of like we were talking about um, when we were talking about the uh, the book Power Trip, where you know it's the history of of energy. Yeah, and um, this idea that the today's cure is tomorrow's disease, right? And that's the way it's always been. You know, we were de deforesting the whole world and then we found coal, which is much cleaner and more efficient. Well, then coal usage got too crazy. And then we got oil, which was cleaner and more efficient. And now oil has allowed us to create all kinds of things that make modern life possible. Um, you know, it has properties and plastics that allow for amazing things that really we don't have a green um, replacement for right now. We're starting to play with plants as, uh, you know, using certain amounts of plant matter to replace certain amounts of plastic and those sorts of things. But the technology isn't quite there yet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with green energy, um, you know, oil is such a concentrated form of energy that wind and solar and, and water have a hard time replacing because you need much bigger infrastructure and the infrastructure is the part that's not green to make and it produces a much lower output of power. So these are struggles that, um, that exist outside of, of any political 
um, yeah. and any political gamesmanship, right? These are, these are legitimate issues. And so when trying to, to establish a climate baseline, whether it's human infrastructure for energy or whether it's um, ecosystems or that sort of thing, we have to think very carefully about what we put into place because, you know, this tree that might in theory do this great thing for an ecosystem, but that it's never been in that ecosystem, it might do a very good thing in that ecosystem for a short amount of time, but then in the long term, it might become something invasive, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The new energy solution we come up with might be something that, you know, seems to miraculously reduce our emissions in the short term. But then in the long term, as with every energy source we've ever had, right, except for water, might end up poisoning us in some other way. So, again, it's that that concept really hit me hard reading the book that that today's cure is tomorrow's disease. And, and yeah. human, the history of humanity is coming up with ways to address these challenges, but they're always imperfect solutions that will require refining later on. There's and no silver bullet. There's no silver bullet. And this requires what, what you were just going through, uh, reminding us of that, that book, is that this requires a constant awareness of and ad adherence to facts that have been established by the previous iterations of a, of a of an energy source or the, the the previous practice of science until we know otherwise this is the way things seem to work when we know otherwise then we'll be putting that in place so even that is in flux all the time but if we don't keep track of um if we always uh, shudder ourselves to well this is this is our baseline now uh, as if this is the given, this is the way things are supposed to be, or this is the way, when, when, no, there's not a supposed to be, uh, that just doesn't exist and, until we, we philosophically create the supposed to be's. If we, we have the, the, we, we say, for instance, we, we have the, the God granted right to X, Y, and Z. Well, we say that, <laughs> but, but it may well be that, 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 and that may be so, but it's not necessarily obvious except intrinsically. It's mm. not explicitly obvious. We say we value uh, bodily autonomy, autonomy and freedom. Those are big deals. Those are very important. We don't live that consistently, and therefore that's not a consistent thing in in the world. We just make it up, <laughs> and and in making it up, either we stick with it and try to figure out how we follow through with it with all the changes around us, or ad adapt to the changes without trying to take things away. Well, what things are we talking about? Well, we might have to take away how how much you can travel. We have a God-given right to travel anywhere we want to. No, we, we enabled ourselves to do that, but 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 you're talking about how uh, how easy is it to get from point A to point B? If we get to a place where it depends on whether we get to breathe and whether we can survive temperatures, uh, and, and 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 if that's dependent on whether we keep eating as much meat or producing meat in the ways that we do, which is not the way it's always been. This is an example of storytelling that goes amok. Mm. Oh, the family farm. We've got to preserve the family farm. 
The family farm virtually doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. It's corporate farming where cows do not graze. Well, then we have family farms that emerge that do organic. You know, we, in this very area, we've got wonderful people who do that. Small farms, organic farming, trying to have a small carbon footprint, but they're up against these major corporate entities, which create more methane. Yeah, me, I had a friend that was, him and I were talking about it um, the other day. And, um, you know, I we we're talking about how there's <laughs> the school teacher asked students, um, you know, if you were a wealthy landowner, wealthy white landowner in the 1800s, uh, would you be an abolitionist? And everybody rose their hands, right? But that's not true, right? Not everybody would be. There'd be a large amount of them that would go along with slavery because that was the that was the zeitgeist of the time. That's the institutional part of it, right? And so really only the very few that had a strong moral compass and were willing to go against the culture and were willing to make sacrifices were the ones that became abolitionists. I think you can see something similar on the climate scale now, right? There's a lot of people who, um, you know, I think, th you know, project yourself into the future 60 years from now and your grandchildren are asking you, well, were you a climate advocate back in the day before all of this? And a lot of people say, oh, yeah, yeah. But that's the thing is, I think being a climate activist, right, is it's more than just saying you want things to change. You have yes. to actually make some changes. You were, have to make some changes. Uh, were you buying, uh, you know, bamboo or sus sustainable forestry products? Were you spending the extra money on the local organic meat? and not going to the store and none of us is perfect right none of us is going to do all of the things but were you doing your best to try to make a difference yeah and um i think that if, if a lot of people view themselves through that lens you realize um it's hard you know and it's a lot easier to do the easy thing that's, like we mentioned that's, earlier that's, on, that's right? what you said yeah it's it is hard to take a position that uh, puts you in conflict with uh, a large um, social force. But it's necessary if you're going to do two things at the same time. Preserve that which you think is the most important philosophical elements of your particular culture and do so in a way that in a utilitarian fashion makes it possible not just for most people but for virtually everybody to be able to live well and we have to redefine what living well means yeah yeah I, you know i i'm i don't have a ton of money to contribute to charities but the ones I always do contribute to are environmental ones, right? Mm -hmm. And some people give me flack for that, right? Because, um, you know, I'll get the one for, I'll get the, the request for kids with cancer, right? And I put it in the recycling bin, right? And people go, oh, that's heartless. How could you not, not um, you know, contribute to something like that, but you'll contribute to the Nature Conservancy or something, mm -hmm. right? And I go, well, because overall, again, it's a utilitarian calculus right hmm. how can i do the greatest good for the greatest number of people with the resources that you have right and it, you know the arbor day society the nature conservancy a lot of people don't know this but like they regularly have drives where if you donate like five dollars they'll plant like a hundred trees 
right? <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's just a very small amount of money to do a really large amount of good, right? And if you interface with your local agencies, right? Like I was talking about the, the New York State DC or the Cornell Cooperative Extension, yeah. there's a lot of programs that they have that will tell you the things that you can do, just small things you can do to help make things a, a better place. And that's the thing about environment, right? Is if you make the environment better, you really are helping everybody in some way. Yes, and the local is the place to be. I mean, even now there are villages and towns where we live, uh, you, where you live and where I live now, they're both towns are uh, reassessing uh, and, and doing uh, intentional planting of trees uh, because we know that shade and tree cover helps reduce the amount of energy that air conditioning has to address for places that heat up. You know, this summer, I mean, here's here's a baseline. Here's a, exactly the idea of the baseline. I always thought of Perry and Warsaw, where we both live respectively, I, I, as very tree-friendly places. But I've been doing a lot of walking as part of an adjustment over the, the recent years and wasn't just because of the pandemic, it's because I, I love to walk. So, but you have to get yourself back into that. And, and there were many places this summer when I was doing some babysitting uh, over here in Perry, for instance, where the streets that I thought were just trees everywhere, there were very hot patches and you'd have to walk for a while before you got under any, another tree. So, uh, on the on the macro scale, you glance and you say, "Oh, look at all the green and and Perry." Yeah, but when you're actually walking down the streets, some streets can be very very intensely hot. Yeah, and so the so the baseline that one has in one's head is not necessarily the accurate one well, for how things are. Yeah, yeah, and um, that that brings us to. Another question, which is, how does the reality of man-made climate change philosophically affect humans' relationship with nature? Do we have dominion over nature, or does nature have dominion over us, right? Because I think there's always been this, this sort of, um, you know, we've always had this idea that we're bending nature to our will to make our, you know, to make the world ours. And that, that while that seemed like something that was uh, a powerful positive force for humanity we're now seeing that maybe that is still true but really it, we're creating a, a bad place for ourselves but in the long term it's still nature right yeah so so how how does climate change affect our relationship with nature well that presupposes that we acknowledge a climate change and uh, I, I think it can uh, it can affect us in many ways. We will we'll move past the idea of denialism for a minute. Um, let's let's go to the position that you were talking about before. Where so well, what what am I supposed to do? I live in a rural place with really no bus lines. There's no mass transportation that I could use. Am I supposed to just stop using my car? I can't do that and get to work and so on. People legitimately have these things. So 
then you start talking about the ways that the transportation happens, perhaps ride share, uh, perhaps uh, going part way, but in your own car and then ride share, perhaps uh, e-bikes sometimes, uh, and 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 all these smaller, more complicated, multiple approaches can offer some mitigation but it's a step and this is what you were talking about before with with, with having the conversation warsaw is having a conversation this, this uh, upcoming week about uh, transportation there was a survey put out about uh, bicycle cars sidewalks buses and the survey apparently and cautious has been listened to and there's going to be a, a town meeting and then talk about uh, whatever ideas are gathered there to put together a proposal for what could be done. Now, I'd like to be really optimistic and say, yay, we're finally going to address this. I've, I've lived too long, so it's, it's not a pessimism, but it's just a, okay, some things will be heard, some things will be able to be addressed, some won't be viable economically or politically. And so maybe some things will happen. Even if some things happen that has the potential to improve, it's far too slow for the for the overall thing that's happening to us, but it may make it easier for people to survive. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's, that's really good. Um, you know, because... Yeah, I think there's multiple ways it can be affected, right? It's trying, right? There are multiple ways it can be affected. Yeah. And, and I want to jump in on you, but I think it's just, we'll go back to what you were saying, but, but you know, I, I, I differ. I, I love Star Wars, but I differ with Yoda on one particular thing. I've, I've said this many times to students. When Yoda declares that there is no try, there is do or do not, well, he was being a cantankerous old bugger and i have to say no no there is try because trying is doing something that you hope then gains momentum mm. it's much better than sitting around grousing complaining and saying well there's nothing we can do because yeah, well sure there is yeah and i think that the monologue i had at the beginning talks about this point you know the point that you know you can you can either accept climate change but feel powerless or not want to change your life and have this sort of negative doomsday thing hanging over you constantly <clears throat> where you're just avoiding the news yeah. or you can deny a change in climate baselines and really have to um, just sort of in a house of mirrors way uh, adjust all of your philosophical thoughts to accommodate that viewpoint. Or you can see that the climate is changing and the negative effects it's having and try to make a difference, um, but know that you're not going to be the solution. If you think that you're going to be the solution, then you're you're going to have a, a terrible life you're because you're never, right, you're never going to get to that point. No. So really, you know, the positive way to look at it is, is, to, is to understand the reality of the situation and do the best you can to, to mitigate it. But... Um, what role does time play in our experience of climate baselines? Well, that, well, now we're back to the crux of it again. It plays a multi-generational role. 
we, I, I take it as, as a given with the things that we've been reading. I just think it's, it's storytelling is always important. Um, but storytelling with an eye toward, but what are the facts that we're dealing with because of what the story has given us? What you said before, here's how time works for me on this. If my, if, if I survive long enough that my granddaughter is asking me these kinds of questions, what were you doing, Grandpa? Were you just grousing about it? Were you trying to do something? Um, I have things that I can say that we um, made the attempts at and changed in our own lives that we hoped would uh, be contributory. But as you say, we're not going to we're not going to fix it ourselves. But I think time it works in a number of ways with us. It's are we thinking toward what? The little ones now and the non-existent ones now are going to deal with because of what we're doing. I think that's absolutely essential. And that goes back to the indigenous culture wisdom. <laughs> Just to say, think down the generations. Even if you don't have children, even if you're not going to have children, and that's wonderful. These are choices people get to make, and sometimes they're choices life makes, but whatever that means. <sighs> but you still can think about it. See, I, for this time thing, I, I think about something like uh, people who go into a school board meeting and complain. They were veterans. Uh, they don't have kids in school anymore. Why should their taxes have to have to contribute toward a school? Uh, oh, you mean so you're not part of the community anymore? You don't care what happens with the kids in the community anymore because you're not part of this collective anymore. So you just want to be able to opt out. I don't find that. I find that extraordinarily rude yeah <laughs> and anti-communitarian uh and and but i think that's the time thing you, you are we thinking about what we are doing that has an effect on what those other ones are going to be doing yeah because i mean it, it, essentially if you're that person you're saying i don't care about the history of humanity right and i don't think that you need to have children or you know some uh vested interest in the future to want the future of humanity to to be exactly. good. Exactly. Right? I I don't read books, therefore why should my taxes go to libraries? Well, so little of your taxes go to libraries anyway. But well, I just want to be able to. There was a science fiction story once that I read where people got to just uh, choose where they put their taxes. Well, if we actually did that, we would have such a culture change. Mm. Uh, the culture would be upended. And maybe that's what, what people want, but I don't think, I think they would be surprised at where that would lead. I, I do too, because <laughs> this is sort of a tangent, but I think that, um, I think that it would actually be a change for the good, because I think that people don't know how much of their money goes to, um, non-discretionary defense spending. Yep. Yep. I think I even agree. the most, even the most ardent, <laughs> You know, conservative right wing people don't realize just how much of the money goes there. So I think that if you allowed people to to make the split themselves, I think things like education and infrastructure and, and some of these other things would get a much bigger boost than uh, exactly. than, they, than they'd be. Culture expected. would be <laughs> upended and changed in ways that they wouldn't have intended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it, time is very interesting because I think that there's, like you said, there's multiple elements to it, and I think that the big one is that we don't notice drastic shifts 
over the course of a single human lifetime. Exactly. And so, you know, ontogeny versus phylogeny, right? So over the course of, of all of human history, there's been drastic changes to the environment from the ice age to, you know, where we are now. Um, but even over the course of a human life, we've probably witnessed the greatest change in, in climate in a human lifetime in all of history, right? There's a very good chance. Um, but yet there's still people that can deny it because they haven't noticed drastic enough effects. We live in a, an area that is very fortunately sheltered from a lot of climate effects. We have abundant sources of water. We have a very temperate area. And so we don't see it as much, but you still notice, right? I still remember, you know, distinct seasonal changes, yes. you know, having actual winters instead of what we have now, which is a couple heavy snows and nothing. Yeah. And, you know, you, so it, you know, but even, like I said, even though it's very drastic, um, it's still subtle enough. I mean, we're, we're talking one and a half degrees centigrade over the course of 200 years, right? It's a very small amount. And so people have a hard time grasping that. And so yes. time, I think the idea of time and, and, and how pressing the issue is and how, we're, how long it will take to reverse it. Um, is something that people struggle with from a time standpoint. It, it is. And then I think there's the other aspect of time, which is sort of what we've been harping on a little bit, which is that we need to weigh short-term economic interests versus long-term environmental issues. And what what sort of things can we, can we cut out or modify um, that really aren't that impo important that we can adjust to that can have big impacts down the road? <laughs> Who should be responsible for multinational and intergenerational ethical considerations? <laughs> yeah, this is a tough one, right? Let's form an institution for the for the monitoring of. <laughs> See, and I think this plays into the next question too, which is what what are your views on geoengineering as a solution to resetting climate baselines? Because oh, wow. because right now, right, we have these these billionaire uh, Batman types who who want to undertake projects outside of government purview or regulations, right? And so that's a difficult question, right? Because you look at it and you go, okay, well, the world's governments don't seem to be taking enough action to mitigate this issue. Should these private individuals with the resources be allowed to do things that could have potentially good, but potentially disastrous effects? No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I, I, the, the, how about that for one of the simplest answers I will ever get you? Uh, <laughs> uh, no. In fact, that is being addressed right, uh, that, that was, that was being talked about this week at the, uh, at the multinational, uh, is being talked about at the multinational meetings. Scientists are, uh, all these, most of the scientific organizations, really the, the largest ones are saying you cannot we do if we start messing with the atmosphere if we start messing with uh putting in reflective materials so the sunlight says we don't know what we're doing you have to test these things you have to not just willy-nilly go out there and so musk or whomever could i'm sure they could any any country can because we don't have a viable yet um structure yet 
uh, because a lot of people won't acknowledge it because it's, when it's inconvenient, uh, an international law, a structure of international law. We, there are, we certainly have them. We have an international court. It's really hard to get people in front of it. We, we have the United Nations. We have lots of people who are afraid that somehow that's going to make a global conspiracy and bring the end of the world. We don't have any way already of, of stopping countries or countries stopping us, other countries stopping us from saying, yeah, let's go put spag mumps, we used to call them. <laughs> Little plastic pieces, just float them all over the ocean. That'll reflect the light back and everything will be fine. This is magical thinking. And and it's and it's it's chaotic. It's potentially catastrophic. And yeah, there are way too many players who could already do it. Okay, so if we've established that this isn't the way to go and that <laughs> these people shouldn't do it, that comes back to the first question. Who should be in charge of this? How do we how do we make somebody responsible of to do this? Because I think that the issue, right, is with the scattered countries, it's sort of like the issue that we came back to with AI. Remember when there's this AI arms race, everybody wants to be the first person to to have this powerful AI. But all of them are saying explicitly, ah, oh, we should put a moratorium on it. Like we don't know what we're doing. We should stop, but behind the scenes they're doing it. It's kind of the same thing with countries, right? Everybody's saying, yeah, man, climate change is really bad. We should, we should stop our emissions. But behind the scenes are saying, well, man, if we stop our emissions, like, how are we going to keep our economies going? Like, how can we keep fighting wars that have devastating effects on, on the environment? So how do you, who do we put in charge of, of trying to marshal efforts to, to get the countries that are explicitly saying that we need to do something to actually explicitly do something? There's a marvelous science fiction book that is so close to home on this. It's called The Ministry for the Future. We need a ministry for the future. It's by Kim Stanley Robinson. And what it does is just, it is the most frightening, realistic, um, looking at now and projecting outward 20, 40 years. Um, what happens when um, in India has such a drought, uh, so many people die, they say, we're not waiting for everybody else to do this. We're going to do this uh, the mitigation thing, and attempt it, and then that makes things worse. Well, so, so <laughs> people from each nation uh, <coughs> manage to, uh, not just billionaires, but the various uh, people manage to form the Ministry for the Future. It starts, I believe, in the United Nations. But it ends up being something that on the surface is trying to coerce countries to, to do things. Underneath, of course, there's a black ops. And the black ops go in and um, start taking out figures who are blatantly trying to uh, not address the climate crisis at all. They're playing political god with figures to tip the movements of countries toward working together. Hmm. It's very dark yeah. uh, because it makes you puts you in the position of of being a reader. If you, you're reading this book, it's like you, you go through these crises with these people. This is a this is not a you know, there are a few characters that follow through, but mostly it's a planetary thing. And you go through this uh, intense drought and see people dying around you constantly as a character. You can't help it if you're paying attention to the book. And then this group says, "All right, and this person." has been constantly doing the political manipulation to make sure we don't address this. The black ops parts, 
do not answer to the people who run the ministry for the future. They hear what the ministry for the future is saying, and then they go ahead and they do their actions. They they separate themselves from so they so that there's plausible deniability, mm. and they assassinate people. <laughs> yeah, and they blow up corporate projects, and they do things that are uh, are uh, violent, uh, in order to think about those generations, three generations down, because that's that's what their goal is to think. What are people going to say about what this isn't working? We're doing this. So it's a vigil, a planetary vigilante approach. And it's really very difficult for me because I read that book and say, well, dang, that makes a lot of sense at the same time. The other part of the brain is saying, what are you saying? Yeah. You're saying that, that, that violence is the answer. And, and, and so that puts you in a real philosophical quandary. Yeah. Because I think that the problem is, is that there's going to be violence either way, right? If and you that's have a what country, the book is about. Yeah. If you have a country that, I mean, and this is going to happen. It's very likely going to happen. There's going to be places that run out of water or run out of resources. Um, and once you get to that point, there's no longer any climate mitigating Hail Mary that you can use that will suddenly bring those things back. No. And so what is that country's only option? It's to try to take resources from a neighboring country that has them to try to try to, to gain them back. Right. Yep. And so. Yeah, it really does end up in a bad place if there's nothing that's that's done, which is why we need some somebody, something to 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 marshal these efforts. We need, was, the, we need the political force to pay attention to science and engineering and 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 do small scale tests and then see if the democratic will is to to then go ahead but that's all course in democracies right yeah there needs so to you're not going to have a planetary level decision where everyone at the same time says yeah okay go ahead and do this yeah there needs to be some way to synergize economic and climate interests and until you get to that point and i think that and that's the thing that's frustrating right is it seems that there's no political action but I think that there is actually political is action political that, that's action. going towards this way, right? You have government incentives to start using green technologies and, and things, but it's just like with anything with government, it's a slow plotting process. And so, and it's moving too slow. And how do you speed it up while still having it be something that is, um, you know, scientifically certain to be beneficial you know it's it's a very tricky very tricky issue but it's probably an issue for another episode <laughs> <laughs> so, so until next time keep popping.